This week on the Eldritch Lorecast. I will never remember the names of my children, but I will remember that Regdar died at 22. We forget as veteran players just what people don't know. I'm not usually swayed by sort of aesthetic appeals like this, but I will say the older drive through RPG looked like it was from 1994. Dungeons and Dragons Adventurer. I just, he's doing the pee in the cup game. In my neck of the woods, pee in the cup is a completely different game. It's no good way to transition this. Why do we love? Of complex tactical setups in combat and then poo-poo them when it's a tactical system for another type of interaction. Three, two, one. I've forgotten the intro. All of that and more right now. everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lorecast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the spheres. That's right, this is episode 107, which every episode after the 100th has felt like 101 to me. But if this is your first episode, my name is Ben Byrne, joined as always by James Hake, Sean Merwin, and filling in our Australian seat this week is Adam Carnavale. Adam, I have to ask, when you think of iconic D&D characters, someone who is, like, canonically iconic <laughs> to the D&D brand, uh, who do you think of? Regdar is the one I always think of. I have no idea who that is, but he's Sean and of, James are nodding. He's one of two, count them, two example human fighters that you can have in the 3.5 player's handbook. <laughs> I don't know why, but fighters get two for some reason. There's a lot of variety to show off. I will never remember the names of my children, but I will remember that <laughs> Regdar died at 22. He is canonically dead, and he died at 22 years old. A classic adventurous death. We simply will not forget Regdar, Mealy, Tordek, and Lita, the iconic four yes. main, main classes from 3.5. James, is that who you think of when you think of iconic D&D characters, the four? No, actually, I think of the um, the Pathfinder iconics. I've literally never played Pathfinder, but I think of the Pathfinder iconics because I read the comic books that they featured in. And those comic right. books are legit really good. The, the old folks in the show will remember their first adventures that they played. And one of my first adventures was the village of Hamlet back in the AD&D days. And as your party, you would go to the Inn of the Welcome Wench uh, before you go out on your adventures. And you might pick up some party members to go with you, all of whom were sort of the iconic. There was Elmo, who you thought was just a dim-witted uh, farmer, but he was really a ranger. Sorry, spoilers for an adventure that came out in like 1978. Uh, there was uh, Furnock of Ferd, the the rogue or the thief back then. There was Spugnor, the wizard who just wanted to go get components for for potions. And there were I can't remember the name of the two. There was a a big fighter and then a monk, and they were both evil. But they tried to ingratiate themselves into your party, only to betray you at the moat house. You've all, I feel, pulled out very obscure characters uh, because <laughs> Dale in the chat uh, are currently <laughs> screaming Drizzt, uh, mm -hmm. which would not have occurred to me either. Never heard yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know. Weird spelling. Zed's in the name. Sounds yeah, made that's up weird. to me. Um, whether as I would have gone with like villains like Strahd. I think Strahd was who mm. I thought of when I thought of this uh, mm. question. Um, uh, but speaking of iconic D&D characters, uh, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel for news this week as the best I could come up with <laughs> <laughs> is that there is a new novel coming out from Wizards of the Coast 
Uh, it's being published by, um, uh, pardon me, Penguin Random House. So there you go. Not all relationships uh, end sourly. <laughs> um, and it features a couple of characters who sound very stereotypical. Anson, the fighter who's too stubborn to stay down, and Kazrin, the self-taught wizard testing themselves against the world, and Baldric, the polytheistic cleric. Um, and it was kind of posited by comicbook.com. I'm not quite sure where they sourced this or whether they were just speculating, but these could be a new group of characters that uh, uh, D&D is trying to introduce to be the archetypal uh, characters that are used when giving examples of adventures that could be had uh, in the artwork of, I don't know, I suppose the 5.5e, whatever we're calling that. Any thoughts about that? <laughs> I hear, uh, I've heard from the the whispers, the birds that come and speak to me in the morning to deliver my news. I've heard that they have a pet, uh, what's it called? An Odiag or whatever? Yes. Yes. Which is very, it's very um, Saturday morning cartoon. And I'm not going to lie. I'm a little here for it. (laughs) I I think it's funny. I like it. I do enjoy for new players. I think it's very helpful to have that sort of thing. The, like a example to give someone that really closely aligns with what they're actually going to be doing as a player. Because anytime I'm introducing someone to the to the hobby, I'm always like, oh, this is a fighter. A fighter's a little bit like a knight, but they're not exactly a knight, not really. And this is mm. a barbarian. And a barbarian's a little bit like Conan, but not also not that much like Conan. Can do some other things. So to be able to be like, here's a short comic strip and this explains what this character is would be really helpful. One form of like the iconic characters were from the, the D&D cartoon series back in the day, uh, right? They had even the the acrobat and yes. so on. But uh, I, I think this makes sense. This From what I saw of this uh, novel, it looks more like a young adult sort of of uh audience for it and if they're if you're gonna have a push into schools like we've seen them uh put out wizards put out syllabi and and things that teachers or club uh advisors could use then it makes sense to try to position this in a place where you could meld it all together and maybe make it work together if there was enough forethought in it see mostly i'm hoping that these books have like follow through Right. Because back in 2017 or so, around the release of Tomb of Annihilation, if I'm remembering right, there were a series of four choose your own adventure books with the D&D brand. And they featured Mm. art of the classes from the player's handbook on the covers. You are the fighter. You are the cleric. You are the rogue. And you would go through a little. I think it was Schultz related, actually, a little uh, choose your own adventure where you played as that iconic fighter or whatever from the player's handbook. And I don't recall if they gave them names, if they were just, you are the fighter. But the thing that kind of made me sad after that is there was no follow through. There was, there were no sequels. There were no, you know, the continuing adventures of, there were no, let's see the other classes now. And so if they're going to introduce characters like that, I'm really hoping it is, as you say, Ben, that this is set up for some integration with something else. Mm. Usually I'm not all about that. Mm. Usually I'm like, oh, vertical brand integration. Blah. But uh, <laughs> if we're, if we're going to introduce new characters, let's make them, let's make them count for something. Yeah. Let's, I want to mm. see these characters all over the place. 
assuming they're good, interesting characters. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, what I enjoyed about the the artwork, I mean, they weren't really characters, they were just artwork that typified mm. uh, the different classes and subclasses within the player's handbook and then Xanathar's and then Tasha's. And they, they showed uh, a lot of um, variation in what a class could be. Um, I'm I'm not a fan of even introducing characters as I am the fighter, as if that's a a special unique thing. I prefer right. um, classes to be verbs rather than nouns. You know, I I am someone who can fight for these reasons from my past. You know, right? But Wizards branding team would prefer they were nouns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Have you druided recently? <laughs> Uh, touche but i feel that it it can constrain player thinking which in some in some regards is good because uh constraining options can sometimes lead to forward motion in creativity when people have all options they 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 can become paralyzed because they don't know what is like the best option to pick whether as if they're given some definition they're like okay yes i i can see what this is and i like this one the most so i'm going to choose that but then it can become a bit like that is what that thing, that is what a monk always is, that is what a cleric always is, rather than um, sort of opening the idea that a cleric could have a crisis of faith or a cleric doesn't have to have a god that they have on speed dial, you know. It could be right. more faith-based and prayer-based than necessarily like instant magic. For longer or for older players, and I mean as in people who have been playing for a little while, I like the idea of, I like thinking of as thinking of a class as like a skeleton that you can build on and you can build in a real you can keep going that arm can become bigger and bigger and bigger it's gonna look weird but sure it's still (laughs) a a definable creature as in like uh your cleric can be really disassociated from what clerics typically are but for first time players just being able to have something to explain what a cleric is and can do because I feel like a lot of new players, at least it's been my experience for new players, they often get a big stumbling block is understanding what, yeah, what like a cleric even is or what mm. a a bard even is. They don't mm-hmm. completely understand. There's no connection there to be like, these game mechanics apply to this character but won't work either as well or won't work at all when applied to this character yeah we forget as veteran players just what people don't know yeah Uh, and what yeah even even a grappling hook right Mm, yes if you if you're if you're in middle school you might not know what a grappling hook is and if you don't read as much as previous generations may have read you might not know what a lot of words mean. It's crazy that you use grappling hook as an example because I had literally a player, this is going back years, but I had a player who was just going by the pictures of the different pieces of equipment, saw the picture of the grappling hook and thought, oh, that's a weapon. <laughs> I hit people with that. And we didn't, the rest of us, we were all veteran players. We just thought they were being funny, um, hitting people with the grappling hook. And we, when they, when we finally realized, oh, I think at one point they had to climb a wall and another player was like, oh, you could use the grappling hook for that. And they were like, what? And we, it was the funniest thing. Had you never considered, did you not think what the name meant? But they'd just gone by the picture. They were just going by the picture. They weren't even thinking about the name. 
Adam, obviously the grappling hook gives you advantage on grapple checks. I yeah, mean, right. duh, it's yeah. right in the that's, name. That's what it does. <laughs> the book is called, I don't think I mentioned that before, uh, the book is called uh, The, the Fallbacks, Fallbacks Bound yeah. for Ruin. Uh, coming out in March next year, written by Jaylee Johnson, uh, who was the author of Road to Neverwinter, a tie-in novel with the the movie that came out earlier this year that everybody seems to have forgotten about. So go check it out in March next year. This is why I'm bad at selling things. I can never remember to say the name. Speaking of selling things, we got a tip, an email tip for something that might be news, but it also might be not news. It might be three years old, but I didn't notice this either. So I'm bringing it forward to the council to decide whether this is news or not. Uh, Drive-Thru RPG has updated its website, uh, which seems to be a sort of rolling update that's been, like I said, in the works for a couple of years now. When I first got this email, I went and checked Drive-Thru RPG and it looked the same as it always had to me. And then when I checked it like two days ago, uh, it looked all updated. So uh, apparently it's smoother, simpler, easier to search. Uh, this tip coming in from Boy Dolphin wondering like how DriveThruRPG is evolving uh, from being a, a, a site that's all about like homebrew and independent publishers into a site that's more official and, and more official publications are found here. And it's a, an ingrained part of the industry, which I'm assuming is more of a perception rather than reality. Like drive-thru is a is an institution yeah. within the RPG industry as far as I'm aware. Uh Sean, do you have any uh, insight into this? I really don't. I saw the news and I went to uh to look and it looked exactly the same to me and I did some searches and it worked pretty much the same. Now I usually use uh the M's Guild rather than drive-thru. So I don't go on to drive-thru on the regular. I go onto the DM's Guild practically every day. So maybe mm. it changed and I just don't remember what it used to be like. Uh, <laughs> but in terms of it being a a publisher rather than a homebrew, to me, it's always been a publishing site. Uh, all of the big players that I'm aware of have always published, at least in my experience, uh, everything from Pelgrane Press to, to now Ghostfire uh, is on there. So mm. it, it's, always, it's always been a publisher site uh, in my estimation. Uh, it looks more modern, which makes me want to go to it more. I'm not usually swayed by sort of aesthetic appeals like this, but I will say the older drive through RPG front page looked like it was from 1994. Mm -hmm. And that always yes. made me feel as this does not feel like a cornerstone of the industry, which it always has been. Yeah. I mean, all the big publishers publish there. Um, I will also say upon looking there that <laughs> I, I on the front page saw a product titled the one ring TM Strider TM mode. And I just want to go into Strider <laughs> mode whenever I want to do a task. TM. I'm shifting into Strider <laughs> mode TM. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it, actually this is a pretty cool looking product. It looks like a solo play option for playing the, uh, free leagues middle earth system the one ring looks pretty cool i mean I'm, I'm not making fun of it for no reason it looks it looks very fun what's interesting to me uh, correct me if i'm wrong this uh, change hasn't been applied and through my quick and i'll admit very brief googling of this it doesn't seem to have been applied to dm's guild which is interesting because my understanding is both are functionally the same company owned by one bookshelf in the same way that eb games and zing are the same company 
Uh, you'll get that if you're Australian. Uh, I got that reference. <laughs> excellent. Do, would we expect this to come to DMs Guild? Do we think there's a reason this hasn't come to DMs Guild? Am I making that up? Is it, has it come to DMs Guild? I checked DMs Guild and it looks the same 1994 as it always has. They were created by the same company, obviously, One Bookshelf, which is now owned in part by D, uh, World 20. They're all under the same org group uh, umbrella, but it was never meant to be exactly the same. They... They did some things on the DMs Guild that they hadn't done on DriveThru, and some of the functionality of DriveThru is not available on the DMs Guild. So uh, it's never quite looked or been in sync, while a lot of it is the same. If I search for products on DriveThru RPG, I get some products that are on the DMs Guild listed. If I go to the back end and look at things I've published on drive-thru RPG, it will list them. But when I click on them, it said, you have to go to the DMs Guild to, you know, look at, look at your product. So it's sort of, I don't know how they work together. They, they're definitely not in perfect uh, lockstep. I think maybe out of everyone here, I'm the one who uses drive-thru RPG over DMs Guild. So when you sent that, I was like, wait, they've, they've been updating the website look. And since last night, I can't access the site. I don't know what's going on, but it's down for me. It oh. keeps trying to redirect itself. Is that? And I feel like they're trying to, I don't know. I feel like I'm on the Truman show right now. Like I'm trying to, people are trying to trick me or something. I don't know. I don't know. I hate it. Yeah. This was all targeted to you to be like, ah, Adam can't access. Uh, look at these <laughs> sick changes on drive through RPG. Yeah. I can't. Can't we all appreciate and enjoy these? Hey, Adam, are you enjoying these changes <laughs> on uh, what, DMs Guild? <laughs> what is wrong with the year 1994 that a website needs to change, is my opinion? <laughs> no, I, I, look, I, when I first started, and, and a lot of the advice that I think, um, you know, James and I particularly have given out on PAX panels that we've done, uh, but I'm sure, you know, all of us have given the advice on this podcast at some point is mm. if you want to get into publishing RPGs, uh, or you have some homebrew that you want to, you know, share with more people, a great resource to use is DMs Guild or sorry, well, either DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG, depending on on what it is you want to you want to put out there. Um, but when I first heard about this myself and went on to DriveThruRPG, I was scared away by its 1994 look. I was like, uh, I don't know about like throwing, you know, my content up on this real backwater looking website where it feels like nobody's ever going to see it. Um, <laughs> does anybody visit? Is this website still active? Uh, so I feel like the update definitely did it a service, um, especially for yeah. new people coming to it who didn't know about it before. I hadn't considered that other people who don't go there as often might might reach the site and be like, oh, this is, clearly they stopped updating a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> hadn't considered that. Fair. <laughs> Speaking of things from 1996, James Hake, I believe you got a delivery recently, um, which is kind of a callback to a uh, bygone age. Yes. Yes, I do have a delivery fresh from the year 2023 and fresh from jolly old England. It is this. Can I get it in? Can I get it in frame? Can I get it in frame without blocking off my microphone? This is the first issue of. Dungeons and Dragons Adventurer, which is uh, a magazine that Wizards of the Coast is involved in the publishing of, uh, along with known European publisher 
Hachette, uh, which has done a number of other part works style magazines uh, for things like Age of Sigmar and uh, other properties like that. I'm going to disclose that I'm involved in it. Uh, I, I'm the editor on the wizard side of things for this magazine. It's designed to be released once weekly. So you can, if you live in the UK, pick it up at your <laughs> local magazine stand when you're getting on the tube in London or something like that. It shocks me that there are still local magazine stands in any part of the world. But apparently, the UK still has a very strong... Oh, I opened it up and I've got all the special goodies, all the pre-gen character sheets and stuff like that. There's an intro to combat. Given that we were just talking about pre-generated characters because mm. we have a variety of characters with unique art, such as... Krantor Thranax, the rogue, <laughs> who looks like this. Uh, there's Razagar Stormhelm, the hill dwarf cleric. Arena Illyris, the wood elf fighter, who has this art. And this is all new art that was, that was commissioned for the magazine. There's Marovich Farfoot, the halfling wizard, who looks like this. And they all appear mm. uh, on the cover of the thing. Here they are, these iconic characters doing iconic D&D things on the cover of this magazine. My assumption is wizards will do nothing with these characters. They're sort of <laughs> creations of the publisher Hachette for the you know demonstrative purposes for their magazine. But just looking at what is inside here kind of gives you a sense of who the audience is. This is not a product for uh, the audience of the Eldritch Lorecast. Let me say that. This is a product for <laughs> brand new D&D players, people yeah. who will be walking through the street. They've seen Honor Among Thieves. They're about to get on a train in 10 minutes. They're like, hey, what's this Dungeons and Dragons thing that I've heard so much about? So there's like a, a little booklet that talks about, you know, the basics of combat, right? It's like, this is how you play the game. I'm curious how much, because um, obviously this is designed, or it feels like, maybe I'm wrong, feels like this is designed as like an even cheaper, even quicker and simpler essentials or starter kit. So I'm wondering like how, how much D&D could you get out of the magazine? Well, you're going to get at least, I believe, something like 80 weeks of D&D out of this magazine. <laughs> Whoa! Because they're releasing, so my sense is that we're going to be releasing a lot of new content and every adventure or every issue has a fresh adventure in it. Here's one. It starts in Fandolin uh, and it's in the, uh, in the inn in Fandolin. There's a whole bunch of cranium rats that have taken over the shop and every, uh, everyone's scared of it. You go in and it teaches you about swarm rules, right? It teaches you about making attack rolls. Let me just read out the table of contents of this thing to you, because when I, an American, read it for the first time, I was kind of taken aback. It feels to to my sensibility, because I've never looked at a part work style magazine in my mm. life. Joe. Right. You can see that you can see it's hole punched. Right. This is designed to be stripped right. apart and put in a binder. Right. Here's a table of contents. Part one, sage advice. Let's play the basics of play, the world of D&D, &D, structure of play, the dungeon master. Introduction to playing characters, ability scores, species, character class, equipment, and then Fandolin. Uh, issue one's maybe a bad example to talk about this in, but like if you go to issue five, once they've gotten past it, here's the absolute essentials. Yeah. It's like, and now here's a bit about the barbarian, then skeletons, then the Zentarim, then the Sword Coast. It's like, whoa, none of these things have anything to do with one another. But that's because uh, for the most part, each one of these is supposed to be a one or two page debrief on a specific, you know, subset of the D&D &D action that really right. should be taken as its own part. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do build to something. Typically, the adventure has something to do with the content that's within it. Uh, you know, this one talks about cranium rats and Fandolin because the adventure has to do with cranium rats and Fandolin. Um, or, you know, maybe there will be a Grick in an adventure upcoming. And so mm. we'll have a little monster spotlight on a Grick, uh, or the Neverwinter Watchmen or something like that. Um, but really the thing that's most curious to me about this magazine is that it, it exists at all, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's only a handful of pages, right? You can see that it's fairly thin. Yeah. Uh, but Every week, there's going to be a new one of these on UK magazine stands, maybe beyond. I don't know what their plans for localization are in any way, but uh, that's just a part of the publishing industry that straight up does not exist in, in mm. my part of the world anymore. And on top of it all, uh, there's a whole bunch of like stuff that comes with it, too. There's a dice set in this one, character sheets, extra booklets. I know there's going to be other bits of dice and inspiration tokens and stuff to follow. They're going to keep updating the pregens as you level up throughout the adventure that they bring in here. It, it really is quite a production. Am I right, James, in remembering that if you're in the UK, you can also order it and have it mailed to you? Or is it only at newsstands? Yes, I do believe that. Um, I'm, I'm not so clear on how exactly it gets to you, but it, their website, if you Google D&D Adventurer, assuming the SEO is good on that, uh, there is a Hachette <laughs> built website that we'll talk about, you know, ordering it online. Um, and it might be that these extra goodies are only from the online order. But if you look at the, you know, the, the whole big thing I showed earlier, right? Um, this this bit is what you would get at the newsstand. And it comes with, you know, this dice set. It's all it's all built in there. Someone's asking about the wow. RRP online and they let you know for sure it's two pounds. I could be wrong about this, but I think the first issue is cheaper than the the following issues okay. and then they get a little so it's like the first ones they they, they pull you in with a little <laughs> taste first and then i think they go up to something like five or six pounds uh I off the top of my that. head i believe hachette were the same company that were behind a couple of uh warhammer themed age of sigma uh warhammer 40k themed uh magazines that were similar to this where it was like you collect an army over the course of of each issue uh, until you kind of have a, a final army collected at the end of it. I don't know if this is coming to Australia, but I feel like I've definitely seen previous Warhammer themed uh, magazines like this on newsstands here in Australia. So uh, you got to be in the Commonwealth. Ha ha, suckers. <laughs> it's only the issues will only be written in the King's English. Well, I got to say that was the hardest part of editing this thing is I <laughs> needed to shift my brain into using, you know, <laughs> use in color and honor and valor and uh, spelling armor. center in an unphonetical yeah. way. Armor yeah, and armor, honor, I reckon, armor got class you a is few. spelled differently as a mechanical term. Yeah. This, yeah, thing. yeah, the correct way to spell it. Yeah, <laughs> right, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> now you know how it feels. Now you know how it feels. <laughs> <laughs> I can get behind armor with no U, but I can't get behind color with no U. Color mm. it does. U. I don't know why I can't explain it, but I 100% know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Color no, should I, have a U. It just should. This is one thing that gets me all the time is that uh, the, all these Commonwealth countries still use feet in sort of casual parlance. Yeah. Right. And so D&D has not switched to a to a metric system. It still very much has five foot squares in this in this release games workshop is a uk centric company and they use inches and feet within their games and so uh, i've i assume that inches and feet is kind of the international parlance 
for tabletop gaming in general. Mm. Uh, because, like, Infinity is in inches. Uh, it has an option to swap to centimeters, even though that would probably be better for me. I still prefer to use inches because it just it feels better as a as a tabletop gamer. You know, my brain doesn't want to convert to centimeters. Feels too real. <laughs> I think the UK specifically. I might be wrong here, but they they're like. They could be crazy. They'll take from both systems and then from some archaic ones, just depending on the context. We're getting back into farthings again. Speaking of tabletop games. Adam, I didn't ask you this last time. Are you a, are you a board gamer specifically? Do you play a lot of board games? Not to jump in on your <laughs> advertising by talking about the <laughs> board game we're making, but we're making a board game. And now all of the board gaming we do is about this one board game right. that we're making. And it's it kills me. I want to play Scythe. <laughs> I want to play Scythe. Let me. If you want a, a, a strategic tower defense board game to break up yes. your uh, board game diet, let me tell you about Aberration. Please. Do you like aberrant, unholy monsters? I love, I can't get enough. Oh, then you are going to love Aberration because there are so many aberrant, unholy monsters in this game. Do you like defending the helpless villagers? Yes. With tower defense? Oh, you're going to defend the crap out of these villagers, let me tell you. If you love that episode of The Mandalorian where he helps protect a village from invading raiders, Aberration is the game for you. That one episode? Aberration is the game for you. Do you love bag building? I love bags. Can't get enough of bags. There are bags in this game. Do you love RPG elements like getting to customize your character? Do I love RPG elements? Yes! This is an RPG podcast, uh, so you are going to love... Of aberration because you can customize your character by choosing which character and which class you're going to play and swap them around. That play. sounds incredible. What's what was that name again? The name is Aberration. And what was the link again? It's on GameFound right now. Go to GameFounds.com and search Aberration. A B E double R A T I O N. Adam, you sell our games better than we do. We should have you on all the time. <laughs> I just, he's doing the pee in the cup game. I'm just a random bystander and I happen to win. You'll probably also win if you do the pee in the cup game. I don't know these people. This, is not, this is not an Australian thing. I do not know what the pee in the cup game is. This is not an cup. Australian you got thing. The- he's talking about like three card Monty. Yes, yes. In my neck of the woods, pee in the cup is a completely different game. Speaking of pee in a cup, uh, <laughs> it's no good way to transition this. We had uh, a lot of questions last week in the comment section of the YouTube version of this podcast. Uh, if you're listening to it there, you can comment below because we read all the comments. Um, and Valkyrie Bait asked, this was based on our discussion about the um, negotiation system from the MCDM role-playing game, which we discussed, debated about, um, uh, lambasted, celebrated all in equal measure uh, last week. Um, For those that might not have listened to that episode, basically the negotiation system for the new MCDM role-playing game is very robust, very crunchy, very tactical. There's a lot of nouns. I don't have my notes in front of me for it anymore. So, uh, you know, I can't do a full recap, Uh, but, but, I was not personally a fan of it because I am not a fan of crunchy, robust, um, uh, uh, scaffolded social negotiations or social encounters in RPGs generally. I think the overall tone of the episode, I don't want to speak for my co-hosts, but I think people took away the overall tone was that it was maybe a bit too crunchy, 
generally speaking. Uh, and then uh, Valkyrie Bait asked, why do we love complex tactical setups uh, in combat specifically? Uh, and then in their words, poo-poo them when uh, it's a tactical system for another type of interaction, in this case specifically, social interactions. Um, I almost replied to this in the comments, but I'm glad I didn't because now we can talk about it here. Sean, I believe you had something you wanted to, to dive in on this. Take it away. Yeah, it it's... It's interesting because one of the reasons that D&D in general and 5e in particular is so well loved is because it has a little bit of something for everyone. It has some crunch mm -hmm. for the people that want to play crunchy combat, and it's got more freeform role playing for people that want to do that. And it's sort of the, the chocolate and the peanut butter of a Reese's, right? You you don't know if they'll go well together, but you put them together and you're like, hey, all my friends can play this game because there's something for everyone. Um, what you're doing sometimes, and it's not wrong to do it, but when you take a game that has that reach, has that something for everyone aspect, and you take the chocolate and you wipe the peanut butter off and you turn the peanut butter into chocolate, but it's more runny, uh, then you just have two different kinds of chocolate and the people that like <laughs> peanut butter are sort of left out. And so there's nothing, I don't think people are upset when it's, when there's a game that does it. I think that people get upset when it's tried in a game where they don't want it. The social interactions in 5e, you know, like we can talk about how we do social action, social interactions in 5e to make them more crunchy or less for the for the taste of our group if we want to get into that discussion. But just to to build on what you're saying, I have players in my group that love combat and I'll have players in my group that love social interactions almost inversely, you know, where the combat players, <laughs> they enjoy social, but they want to roll big dice and they want to kill some things. And yeah. people who love the social interactions might get bored if a combat goes for too long because they're kind of like, I get the point. This action scene's a bit long. Thank you very much, Zack Snyder. Um, <laughs> and and the game having those two varied styles of play in the one game allows us to sit and play one game that kind of serves both types of players in you know different capacities as we as we go through the different parts of the game. In fourth edition, the game did try something that you may remember called skill challenges. And what mm. that did yes. was try to make a tactical system for other types of encounters other than combat. And it was universally disliked because of what it was trying to do. And now, granted, it wasn't fully fleshed out well. It wasn't explained well. So that didn't help. But just the concept of it was reviled by many, many gamers who took the step to try to play fourth edition. So sure. it has been tried in a D&D type setting and it hasn't been received very well, no matter what edition it was or uh, how it was tried. Now there are games out there that you can play that totally mechanize social things. Now they're, they're mm. but they're not D&D, they're not, Right, a D20 mm. game. They might be other kinds mm. of games and mm. they're there for you to enjoy. The combat is easy to easy to turn into mechanics because it's based around most combat systems are based around hit points or a number of 
pieces of damage that you can take until you die or are downed or whatever. From that foundation, anything can be built. But role-playing doesn't have that. So no. it's the second you try to put any sort of a mechanical system onto a role-playing uh, onto role-playing itself, it's it's like building on sand. It's going to be difficult. You're fighting against what you should be doing there. I think the best system I've ever seen that does role-playing is, in recent memory at least, is, I don't know if you've ever played Lancer. The <laughs> you, just hit, you just hit James's buzzword. Like, <laughs> like if we were on QI, it would just be going whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm going to be riding this right high now. for the rest of the week. Yes. <laughs> did, did we just become best friends? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I well, knew I loved you, Adam. <laughs> I, I love you too, James. And I'm sure you're well aware that in the Lancer system, combat, in, when you're inside the mech, when it's combat, it's so mechanically rich. There's so much like little pieces of nuance because uh, I uh, in my regular role playing group, I have two different players who are both like the I don't know how to like they're they're both like the beautiful mind reading through the book, knowing everything and being able to perfectly crunch through the numbers of this. Like when we started playing it, uh, when we started playing Lancer, one of these two people was like, hey, I've made if anyone here in this group wants, I've made a spreadsheet of all the damage possibilities for every different mech. And, uh, I, and that is an insane thing to do. But just to give you kind of an explanation of how rich this system can be for rules. Uh, but then when you're outside of the mech, when you're doing anything socially, the game takes a very like, Oh, uh, you, here's a couple of like skill suggestions, make up your own if you want, and you kind of just pass, fail, and if you fail, there's an option to re-roll. It's very, but that's kind of it. That's kind of it. It's like almost four things you need to remember for role-playing scenarios, four sets of rules, and that's it. And I think that's great. Uh, Jay Pizza Beats in chat said something very similar to what I've been thinking of this whole conversation. Um, essentially at the table, if you're sitting down at the table, it's very easy to talk with one another. It's very easy to talk to the extent of your human abilities. And I would say to a certain degree, uh, tabletop RPGs attract people who have at least a little bit of theater nerd in them, ranging from a little bit to a lot of it. Um, right. so talking in a way that is entertaining, at least to us and the people deeply engaged in it, uh, is, is fairly easy to do without any sort of mechanical framework um, that and it fairly closely represents one to one the action that's happening in the fantasy in addition to what's happening you know outside of it combat um, does not do that at all <laughs> uh, <laughs> no one is wearing an ODU suit no one is shooting death rays or even you know laser pointers right uh, no one has prop swords uh, even even LARPs uh, have a less intensive combat system than D&D because a lot of the system is offloaded onto real physical movement, right? Mm. Um, and I, I think that's the core of the thing is that people think when they get to a really crunchy uh, uh, communication system, role-playing system, they're like, why do we need this? I can do this just fine chatting about it. Um, mm. Not everyone, right? You know, some people really like to play characters that are 
uh, smarter or more eloquent than they are. And that's why no. the skill check remains in the game uh, so that you can at least have some kind of mechanical system buffing up your your perhaps, you know, less than Shakespearean dialogue. Uh, but for the most part, we can talk pretty decently. There's, I mean, there are so many RPG podcasts out there. You, you just know that we can talk pretty decently. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we love to one. talk. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the the thing that I would say uh, to answer the, the original question, sort of in agreement with you, James, but but maybe a slight difference, being that like, I want. Why don't I like robust mechanical social encounters as opposed to robust uh, mechanical combat encounters is because to me, a social encounter is a different type of encounter. It doesn't feel like combat, you know, it it shouldn't to me personally feel like combat. Um, it might feel like a debate and might feel combative in that sort of way, but they are two different things that are happening in the game. I want my social encounters to feel social rather than overly strategic. And you might go in with a strategy, you know, one thing I think I, I bemoan about insight checks in particular, and I try to impress into my players is that insight checks are not just a lie detector. Uh, you can right. use insight checks to try to gauge whether a guard is going to be more open to bribery, intimidation, or persuasion. You know, does this guard look like, for for whatever reason or, or in conversation with them, do they seem like they're hinting that they would accept a bribe? Do they seem proud and are therefore unlikely to take bribes or, or react to intimidation? But if you appeal to them through persuasion, you know, that's what insight is there uh, for in, in my reckoning. Uh, and that introduces a little bit of those mechanics, but then I want my players to talk, you know, and have a bit of that theatre. And I know that's not for everyone, but, uh, you know, another critique we got last week was, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, why uh, you said that this game wouldn't replace 5e for you and I think that's close-minded and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I'm like, look, this game, as Sean said, sounds great for people who want specifically strategic, crunchy mechanics across everything. People who just mm. want all chocolate all the time, that's the game for you. Uh Pardon me, but I definitely want that variation and for social encounters to feel like social encounters, to feel like two people are, are exchanging ideas or concepts or thoughts. Um, and whenever a they come up against a gate where a character uh, needs to decide about something and I'm not sure what the character is going to do, I might be like, well, look, I'm not particularly persuaded by this uh, argument you've put forward, but maybe this character will be, um, and your character's meant to be great at persuasion, so make a persuasion check for me, you know? The checks can make up the difference between you and Sherlock Holmes if you're trying to play a Sherlock Holmes-style character, um, right. but I still want to have a fluid, uh, engaging conversation as opposed to something that feels like lawyers exchanging emails, uh, in Dale's words. So, the, like, in a, in a phrase, they're different types of encounters. That's why I don't want the same mechanics for them, is because they're different types of encounters. I agree, yeah. I think you're right. Speaking of social encounters, we got another email that I think kind of dovetails into this, which is from Sasha, uh, asking about casting spells in front of NPCs. And this has been <laughs> something that I've come up against uh, in my games, for sure, uh, which is how do you handle casting spells in social situations, especially spells like friends or charm person 
uh, or whatever it is, is it clearly, is it clear to other NPCs that a spell is being cast in this circumstance? Can the, you know, if you chart cast charm person on a king or suggestion on a king, um, is this like reaching inside of your jacket in front of the president, you know, and the Secret <laughs> Service are going to stop yes. you? Yes. Because they don't know yes. whether you're doing- funny metaphor. They don't know whether you're doing- There are two spell components about this. <laughs> are you doing charm person or are you doing fireball? You know, what are you about to pull out of your jacket, a letter or a gun? Um, <laughs> there is, like, the sorcerer has whole class mechanics about, about subverting this sort of thing, right? Sure. Subtle spell, silent spell to eliminate the need for somatic and verbal spell components uh it is a it is an easy to miss detail right because dnd has so many systems all flying at once it is very yeah, easy right. to forget well the well what spell components does your spell have and of course the player's not going to care about that unless they are deeply deeply entrenched in the system uh because it's a it seems at first glance to be such a superfluous detail especially when things like arcane foci uh eliminate the need to care about material components uh, because you're just not thinking about the components at all anymore, unless it has a gold value attached mm. to it. But yeah, if you're in a situation like that, even if it's not a, a spell like friends, where, uh, at least in the 2014 version makes them quite angry at you after you cast it, if you're casting charm person on a group of guards, you know, one, unless you're upcasting, you're only getting one of them. Um, and all the others looking on like, what are those, you know, what are those Naruto hand signs they just did? <laughs> <laughs> and also all of a sudden my friend is totally like, Weird. my old friend, oh, it's good to see you again. When previously they were like stone faced there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a clear, it's a clear tell that mm. something like a deception check or a sleight of hand check could potentially, uh, if not completely eliminate, at least, you know, ameliorate somehow some spells make it seem more subtle than others like charm person oh sorry some spells seem to imply subtlety more so than others like charm person for example as james rightly points out has verbal and somatic components so it's hard to do it subtly unless you're literally doing it subtly as the sorcerer might but something like friends um only has a material component from memory and it's applying a small bit of makeup while you cast the spell, which I feel like is could absolutely be done subtly. I might I might request a player make a roll um, or something like that. Yeah, but I think and then the massive downside that Friends has, I think, makes balances that out pretty quickly. It only lasts for a minute. And when that minute's up, they know that you did that. <laughs> And I don't know how many social situations you can imagine, but I can't think of many where you've gotten that far away from them after a minute. I kind of like the change to the 2024 Friends Cantrip where they don't know that you've charmed them and they don't become hostile. Because when I was playing a bard, yeah. I found that to be really stifling on my ability to use. I was like, well, I don't ever want to use this, this cantrip mm. or this spell anymore because I don't want to turn people hostile towards me. I just want to be supernaturally charming. Uh, suggestion is a spell that only uses verbal components. So can they tell that a spell is being cast when you when you speak suggestion? I'm pretty sure that's true. Earlier editions of D&D asked for a spellcraft check or a check to identify what sort of a spell has been cast. And I liked that system. I thought sure. that was because then that does still feel like you can have at least a little bit of both worlds because you can have the. <laughs> As you said previously, the guy walks up to the president, reaches into his coat, 
And then the court mage can be like, he's casting a spell, get him! <laughs> or something like that, which I, I think is very funny. Yeah. Um, but then you can still, yeah, kind of have um, a, a, a hidden, or if you're clever about it, you can hide spell casting to a level. What's interesting is is the, the base rules don't tell us this, which means mm. the game itself doesn't necessarily care. And if the game itself doesn't necessarily care, then it's up to you as the game master to decide if you care. And then the yeah. addition of things like the Sorcerer's Subtle Spell then makes you think maybe the game does care. Mm. Mm. But if if the game cares that much to put that in, then why isn't it mentioned with the magic section of the book? And so what it comes down to for me is what's the situation and who are my players? Yes. Sure. Is it yes. if it's going to be a Grim Hollow campaign where there's an inquisition against spellcasters, the very first time someone tries to cast a spell in public, I'm asking, how are you doing this? That sets the tone. Otherwise, I'm going to let it go unless it's a very unique situation, such as you're in front of the king or you are <laughs> in front of a group of people who may be hostile to spellcasters. Now, then we're going to have a little conversation and, and we'll yeah. we'll uh, see what kind of shenanigans we can get up to. It does remind me of uh, uh, early in The Witcher 3, uh, when I played through that the first time, uh, there's an opportunity uh, to confuse one of the guards using one of the signs. And I hit the option. And I was like, ah, I'll just confuse this guy and, and force suggest him away. Mm. Um, and... His friend goes, oh, he's casting spells. And I was like, what? You're not supposed to be able to tell. Oh, oh, my God. Like, that didn't work. <laughs> okay, understood. Only do this when there's nobody else around uh, to kind of spot that I'm, that I'm doing this. So that, that, I suppose that game takes that stance, at least in that situation. But, you know, Sean mentioned Grim Hollow. And in my session zero with my players, I, I made sure to tell them, it is very obvious when you are casting spells. You are rewriting the tapestry of reality, right. you know, within this world. Uh, it is, you can't, you know, you might click uh, and bring a, a, a candlelight to your finger or something like that, but that is very clearly magic to anybody who's paying close attention. And if you want to summon magic more than just that little flame, if you're trying to create bonfire, you might need to, you know, do some sort of gesture that causes ribbons of fire to kind of whirl in the air around you to then create this bonfire in the place that you want it to create an atmosphere of, you know, Sean mentioned the Arcanist Inquisition, they are dangerous, but also even when the Inquisition aren't around, this feeling that magic is special. You are a unique person in this world. You are uniquely yeah. powerful and uniquely gifted uh, in a way that most other people, the vast majority of other people simply are not. And when you cast a spell, it is potentially terrifying or beautiful, you know, or something, one or the other. But I made sure to to nail this point home because the number of times I've had players go, I cast fireball, but I've got like my hands behind my back. And so they don't see me doing like the, because I do it like real small. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you, you, you need to make the gestures in the exact ways to make this spell work. Otherwise you might cast it on yourself or something, you know, spell casting is hard. It's not easy. 
Depending yeah, you're on the gonna setting. you're gonna cast Ball of Toads if you try and do it small. Like it'll just <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll sure. just totally <laughs> muck it up. Hang on a minute. How do we do this Ball of Toads spell? I want to know <laughs> yeah, more I, about I, this. I, what level spells are the material components? components are like this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I uh, I can't remember what edition of D and D has it, but I always like to go in the various different editions. I like to read the different for what they say about verbal, somatic, and material components to a spell. And I, I remember, I think it might have been 4th Ed, but one of them certainly describes uh, 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 somatic components as being very grand gestures on purpose. Sure. It's very purposely like you need a, the most spells require two hands and they require two hands for a reason. Um. <laughs> That being said, I do think I do have I this is just me personally, but I feel like illusion spells should inherently be a little tricky to detect a little sure. bit, just a little bit. Sure. In the casting of it as well yeah. as the spell itself. Even when detecting magic, I have a home rule just that I like to play with where if someone's detecting magic, I'll make a secret little roll for them. And if they fail it. I will, when they're getting the the uh, school of magic, I'll give them a different school. Yeah, gotcha. If they fail. Yeah, gotcha. You know, the, the G, this is a completely different conversation, but the GM making all the roles behind the screen, when I played with you, Adam, it was the first time I'd experienced that. And <laughs> at first I was like, oh, man, I don't get to make any roles. I don't feel like engaged. It's actually quite relaxing. It's just, you know, <laughs> I just sit here and have a story told to me. This is great. <laughs> Crucially, you didn't say engaging. It's relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's yeah. very funny. asleep at the table? That's the question. <laughs> the hardest yeah, I've, I've ever laughed at a table, I was watching it being played, and it was set in Greyhawk and Keoland, where all of the mm. peasants are very superstitious and don't like magic. And they were tr- yes. the players were trying to get a directions to the the keep, but none of the townsfolk speak common. They only speak Kiowish, so they couldn't uh-huh. talk to them. So one of the wizards said, "Well, I cast Caprian languages, and for that spell in third edition, you had to touch the person that you were going to speak to." So what we get is the role playing of the wizard casting the spell and reaching out to touch the peasant. And the DM gets up and starts running away around the table. So the wizard is chasing the farm the farmhand around, trying to touch him in order to speak with him to find out where the keep is. And this was like within the first three minutes of the adventure. I'm like, okay, this is I love D and D, and this is why. That's very good. I, I had a similar situation where they the, the party went to um, I think it's called Dung Rung Lung in uh, Chult, and it's where yeah, all the three times are. fast. Dung Rung Lung, Dung Rung Lung, Dung Rung Lung. Aha! You yeah. thought I couldn't do it. Um, you got it. You didn't. Uh, got- <laughs> <laughs> play the tape. Yeah, I'm probably saying Doc right. Tape. Play the uh, tape. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to see on the YouTube analytics now just like a huge spike as people go back to <laughs> to see. Um, uh, I had a, a player actually get a little bit disgruntled, like uh, like not not upset, upset, but just kind of like a little bit peeved because mm. uh, they couldn't speak with the grung. Do you say disgruntled? Sorry. Disgruntled, yeah. disgruntled. Is that not a word? Oh, disgruntled. You know oh, it's a good, good pun when people have to ask three times what the. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. About I, that. I, I, that came off seamlessly. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> 
cool. All right, going out maybe with a last little bit of news. Another day, another live play. Uh, the Natural Six is a new live play that is coming at some point in the future. It's currently at Kickstarter. What makes this notable is that it's a group of, I believe, majoritively UK actors um, that are getting together to put on this live play led by Harry McIntyre or McIntyre uh, from The Last Kingdom. He's a cool actor. Um, he was good in that that series. Uh, and Doug Cockle, who, if you don't recognize that name, is the original voice or the voice uh, of Geralt of Rivia from uh, the Witcher series. Got two in this week. <laughs> um, uh, but I uh, does it is anybody here a fan of live plays that are going to check this out? I don't know. It just kind of seems like another one to me. I'm going to I be like honest. dropping in, just checking what people are doing. It's interesting. I don't know if I'll, obviously I'll have to listen to it to find out if I like it or not, but sure. um, <laughs> a bunch of actors getting together to play D&D. Has that ever worked before? <laughs> not that i can no, remember yeah this. interesting yeah. Hmm. Hmm. uh video game voice actors um largely yeah. as well so yeah Does mm. that, has that ever worked i can't think of a single no mm. other than the two you mentioned there's some interesting uh names on here uh like ben Starr, i've seen him show up he's the main character in final fantasy 16 Aoife wilson has won a bafta she's hosted DD in a castle games uh, over there in the I, UK. I am so glad you pronounced her name. Uh, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I had, I did not want to even attempt it. That's I, why I didn't go through the cast. I love that name. That's one of my favorite names of all time. Aoife. Such a cool <laughs> Gaelic name. Yeah. Yeah. There's some, there's some real talent on here. I, I, I would, I would, you know, I would watch for Doug Cockle alone. I, I love his voice. Um, yeah, but it, 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 do we want him to do the Geralt voice or do we not want him to do the Geralt I want Geralt to do a different voice. voice. I, I want to see yeah. that man's range. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, he's kind of like the the Kevin Conroy of Geralt's. Now that we've got a live action Geralt, in terms of like probably the secret definitive version of that character, like um, mm. uh, Kevin Conroy was the secret definitive version of Batman. I was just gonna say we're soon to have two live action versions of Geralt, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. Geralt's gonna become like your James Bonds or your Aragons. Well, not Aragorn, because there's a definitive Aragorn for the time being. And it was the one from the Rankin Bass movie in 1970. <laughs> oh, that is that one is a known actor, though, isn't it? Like that uh, isn't that um a Doctor Who actor who did that I Aragorn? Don't know. Oh, maybe that's the best Smaug, certainly though. Anyway, this is going to pieces, right. so I'm going to close out the show. Uh, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, if you are listening to it somewhere else such as YouTube, Spotify, um, uh, likes, stars, all that stuff is always appreciated, gets us out to more listeners. Um, Adam, did you know that we are almost at 10K followers slash subscribers for the Lawcast across all our platforms? My knowledge is great, but not that great. Oh, well, we're, we're, we are almost there, and by almost I mean quite a gap. So if you want to help us... Uh, feel free to follow or subscribe wherever you are. If we get to 10K before the end of the year, um, we'll get Doug Cockle on the show and get him to do the Geralt voice. I don't know. Anyway, uh, my name's been Ben Byrne here with James Hake, Sean Merwin, Adam Carnavale, and we will be back next week for another episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, and we will catch you then. Bubba da ba da ba da ba Gerald Munch, shut up about Bubba the Bubba. Seems like a Bubba <laughs> <laughs>